Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone who is building a more humane world from the inside out. And it seems like uh, I need to check in once a year with uh, friend of mine here in Columbia, Missouri, Dr. Dawson, C.W. Dawson, uh, philosopher in residence at uh, Unitarian Church right now, as I understand. Yes. A lot has happened since we talked last year. Wow, a lot has happened. Um, well, first of all, let me say thank you for this opportunity to sit and talk with you. I always have a good time when we get together, whether it's on the radio or other places. And uh, I appreciate I appreciate you thinking about me. So thank you very much. Well, I get your your meditations, and I, I see that you've been uh, teaching a or leading, I should say, a class uh, over there at uh, UU in Columbia. That that was new. I, I I'd like to hope we include some of that in our conversation today. Sure. We've had uh, a pandemic come since. Uh, we talked last. Um, I don't know how things are going over at Wilkes Boulevard. Yeah, United Methodist Church. Well, we are not meeting. I believe the science. I'm not like the president. I think the si we need to listen to the science. And the majority of our members are older. We've already lost one member to COVID-19. Oh. Um, she was with us at the very beginning. She moved back to Indiana. Um, someone came to her home. She observed all the rules. She stayed in. Someone came to her home and they knew they were infected with the virus, but didn't tell anybody. And so three weeks later, she was dead. My um, and, and it's not just the death. I think people miss, some people miss the fact it's not just the death of the 140 some thousand people who've experienced it, but there's little, there are other things that go along with the tragedy that we are not used to. For instance, you in most places, you cannot have more than 10 people gathered together. Mm -hmm. So that means you have to weed some family out who would like to come and celebrate the home going of that person and they can't come. Mm -hmm. My wife's aunt died um, a week ago. And we had the funeral yesterday in Kansas City. We all had to mask, but we had a small group because it's just too dangerous to have a homegoing service with a lot of people. And so the, the pain of that, um, I don't think a lot of people recognize in dealing with the death. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there are some people who still believe that the virus is a hoax. I did an article. Um, I think two weeks ago, I did a survey of people about whether they were concerned about sending their children back to school. Oh yeah, I, I saw know. some of that. Yeah, yeah. And over a thousand people responded and I was really happy with that. I did a number of social sites as well as interviewed individuals, but still one to 2% of those folks I interviewed said they weren't afraid of the virus. They didn't believe that you know, if they caught the virus, they couldn't get over it. Children are immune to the virus, all of that stuff. 
And it just tells us the depth of how some people refuse to listen to the science. Um, Dr. Fauci at one point said he thought there was an anti-science bias in different sections of our population in this society. And I think he's right. Well, we've encountered the anti-science bias in climate change, unfortunately, in, in many church-going people. Yes. So yes. I don't think this is a new uh, construct. Uh, it's just now getting applied over to a pandemic. Yes, absolutely. For my Christian community, you know, they'll say, well, you know, I'm covered with the blood. I, I don't have to worry about it. Jesus is going to take care of it. Uh, and okay, okay, but Jesus said, test not the Lord thy God. Don't Don't put yourself in ridiculous situations and expect God to swoop in and take care of it. And so for a lot of my family of Christians who say, well, we're going to have church anyway, and we're going to sing anyway, because that's part of the Christian tradition. Come on, come on. You, you are putting too many people at risk. I, I believe in God. I, I don't think God is pleased. I believe, Yeshua. I, I think we ought not put God to the test. So we're not going to meet. And then there's another part of this, Dick, if you don't mind. When you have a mandate that says you can only let 50 people in, let's say, and 65 show up, you're going to tell 15 people, go home, you can't come and worship with it. I mean, that, that's just too much. So uh, the pastor at Wilkes, I asked him, his name is uh, Reverend Brad Bryant. I said, when are you all going to start opening up? He says, when everybody can come, because I'm not going to say to someone who who makes their way to the house of worship, no, you can't come in because, sorry, we're over the number. Yeah, nobody nobody wants to do that. Now, on the flip side, and similarly, the Unitarian Universalist Church is not having in-church gathering until May 2021. That's the suggestion of their national association. And again, people want to follow the science. And, and when I spoke to um, Pastor Molly, Molly House Gordon is the pastor of that congregation. We shared, she shared with me, she said, I, I don't want to have two congregations. I don't want to have a congregation of older people who are at least supposedly more susceptible to the virus over and against my younger members who have a better, I, I don't want to separate my congregation like that. And that makes, that makes good sense to me. If there ought to be a place where class and elitism <laughs> segregation ought not happen, it ought to be in the church. <laughs> right. Although it's the most segregated morning in America. Yeah, we still are. <laughs> yeah, we still are. We cover our racism, I think, with classism. So what we'll do... Uh, you know, I, I have some very conservative colleagues who, who like me personally, but think that my theology is a little too radical. You've been to one of the workshops at that place. Yeah. Um, they are a church of about 6,000 members. And so I asked, how many African-American folks? No, I didn't. I said, how many Black folks do you have? 
because I also understand that many Anglo churches put all black people together. <laughs> so they haven't learned to make a distinction between African-Americans, Caribbeans, Africans, other kinds of black people in the world. But anyway, and he said, oh, we're an integrated church. We're about 300. We have about 300 black people. And I said, well, 300 out of 6,000 is, is not a very good number. Um, so, so, yeah, we still are. And if you even talk to African-American churches who have Anglo members, don't have a lot. I think it's harder, for instance, for Anglo people to join uh, a black church. I think it's harder for them than for black people to join a white church. Because still in America, we're a racist society. And still in America, when an African-American joins a white church, for many people, that's a sign of status and upward mobility. Oh, okay. Um, in the in in the black church, when Anglo people join the black church, many of their Anglo friends are like, "Well, why are you going to the black church? Why are you over there?" <laughs> and so I think it's I think it's harder, but I'm I'm hoping at some point we'll learn to get past our racism and our classism, and really really seriously begin to be an integrated church. But that's going to take a lot of change, a lot of change. And I, I even messed up by saying integrated, because when you say an integrated church, you're looking for people who look like, act like, speak like the dominant Anglo culture. What we want is a multicultural church where everyone brings their gifts, their nuances, their identity, and we blend, we join them together. So I don't ask you as an Anglo man, Dick, be less white to join the black church, right? I say, come as you are, bring your gifts, bring your talents. But that means in everything, right? So when I was at Bethune-Cookman, which was 98% black, I had a number of students who went to dominant Anglo large church, mega church. And one of the things I said, which really irritated some of the students, is that if you, if everybody on the finance committee looks differently than you, you might be in the wrong church mm -hmm. because the way in which a multicultural church will have to operate in the future is the people who make the decisions have to sometimes look like me, look like you, look Latino, look Asian, look Native American. That, that if we're really going to be a multicultural church, then we ought to look like our aspirations in the total society. And so, and I think that's very difficult because that means we'll have to change the music. We'll have to change the way people worship. <laughs> Do you use love my wife? Because when I preach on Zoom, my wife is usually at home and my wife is a worshiper. She, she doesn't need a crowd in order to shout, to dance, to, to exclaim. She's a worshiper. Um, I was teasing her today. I said, listen, I got to get ready for deck because we're having a conversation today. So would you please close the door because you're a little loud. She was listening to KOPN earlier, saying to love, right? Then she's shouting. She's making this noise. I'm like, baby, I can't concentrate. She said, you know how I am. 
Well, when I preach with the UUs, she's generally in the background and she's making noise. She is she is a product of the call response that is a nuance of the black church. And so she will, she she'll say, preach, baby, or come on here and say that thing, whatever she says. And the UUs find that fascinating dick. They're like, wow, we really love hearing your wife in the background. <laughs> and I got it. But that's a nuance too, right? Yeah. Is that if we're going to have a multicultural church, I preach in a predominantly Native American congregation once. And they had people who beat drums. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. In the worship. I know a lot of Native American worshipers who smoke tobacco, but for prayer. Hmm. That is set aside for the moment of prayer. So can you imagine, Dick? We got a section of people who are jumping and shouting and a section of people who are like good Presbyterians and making no noise at all. And then we got a section beating on drums. <laughs> now that, in my mind, would please God because it's all of us together. And yet it's, it's in a big building that somebody had to pay for, uh, which is, you know, part of the system in itself. And you talk sure. about the finance committee and, and oh well, we've got a you know building fund, and we got to collect so much money, and then we have to right. So, so much of and I'm going to segue here. Hey, hey, this is going to be good. I'm going okay. to segue into capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, well you, uh, you just did a class on uh, something about uh, critiquing critiques, critiques of capitalism, critiques of capitalism, right? Yeah, um, well, I'll I tell you what prompted me. The day you came uh, to the crossing, and right behind you there was a table, a couple, and, and I consider them my friends. I think they really do like me. But I had made a statement about we need to reevaluate the relationship between the church, the Christian church, and capitalism. Mm -hmm. Because I think too often what happens is that the leadership, the serious leadership of a church has to fight to keep the corporate church from taking over the Christian church. And they were very angry with me. They were like, well, what's wrong with capitalism? Capitalism's a good thing. And because I practice capitalism, I'm able to give my ties to the church and I have a living and blah, blah, blah. And, and that really pushed me to think, wait a minute now, what, what has happened to us? So what do you do with the passage in Acts that says, and they sold all they had and they shared all things in common? Mm -hmm. My understanding of Marx is that when Marx read that passage, he said, I probably could be a Christian, except they took Jesus out of the church mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, and continues his analysis. One of the pastors in this town said to me, and I, just as a way of introduction, one of the pastors in the town said to me, said, well, I know you're a Marxist and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not a Marxist, but I understand the Marxist analysis. And I agree with the analysis. I just don't agree with the conclusion. Uh. Uh, because I think Marx believes that since we are species creatures that are 
characters, our propensity will be, once we get into the communist state, then we'll make whatever we need and we'll spend the rest of our time being, you know, aesthetic creatures. But I think history has shown us that we have a real propensity toward both violence and greed. So that's why I say I don't agree with the conclusion, but I agree with the analysis. And so in critiques of capitalism, uh, we started out first looking at that kind of Marxist analysis of capitalism. Uh, capitalism has changed. The capitalism of, of the early kind of supporters of capitalism would not be recognized with what's going on today. Capitalism used to be a few people owning a company or one person trying to move to a monopoly and separating between the workers and the owners. The bourgeoisie was always over the proletariat. Now what we have are international corporations mm -hmm. that are bigger than some nation states. And what's changed is no longer just the single ownership of a few now you have stockholders. Yeah. And one of the things we learned is that the stockholders can sue a CEO if that person doesn't generate enough profit. Right. So, so the problem of capitalism, I think, is that the commodification of people, that we become commodities and no longer individuals. And not only are we, we are seduced, into believing that that way of life will lead to a better life when in fact the whole point of capitalism is to increase the bottom and decrease the top hmm. so you have countries so so we had sharon welch who came and spoke dr sharon welch she used to be at the university of missouri brilliant brilliant thinker she came and helped us to talk about uh b corporations benefit corporations, another way of putting together corporations and businesses that are not only accessible to the public, but responsible to the public. So you can have accountability hmm. of those corporations. Then the second, um, the third lecture was by my old colleague and friend, William Rodriguez, uh, Latino who talked to us about global capitalism. And one of the phenomena of our small countries that the World Bank, for instance, will give loans to, but at such an interest rate that they can never pay the loans off. Oh, yeah, right. And so, so what happens is, is that they own the country. <laughs> That's the IMF or the World oh, Bank? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and then our last speaker was uh, Tracy Wilson Kleekamp. Who's been on this show. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, I, I think a masterful woman. She has a lot to say. She's very, very bright. That And talk about how capitalism has divided us up in binaries that are no longer necessary. It's not white male, black male, or male versus female, or gay versus straight. Those, those, those are all of false kinds of identities that keep us separated. Mm -hmm. But to start talking about building communities, I think she calls them aggregates, where 
we may not agree about all the same things and may not even like each other, but understand that we are in a contest in a, in a serious one where we can no longer go to quote, as she made the analogy, man to man defense like you do in basketball, but we have to do zone coverage. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I thought that that was really illuminating uh, to see ourselves that way. So I thought the series went really well. That's one of the nice things about being a philosopher in residence with the UUs is that they let me, they just say, you know, do you think? So the first thing we did was talk about, uh, we did a series on black humanism, which had my conservative friends very nervous. And the name of the course was, can you imagine living in the world as if there was no God? Oh, now. What I learned though from the humanists and, and every once in a while in the column I write, is particularly I talked about this a little bit in my last column as a tribute to John Lewis, that the humanists remind me that the social ills of our country and around the world were created by us humans. And if we created them, we have the capacity to dismantle them. And we need not always run to supernaturalism in order to take care of the problem. I interpret that as the the old story where Moses is standing at the edge of the Red Sea, right? And Moses is crying about, oh, what are we going to do? And and God says, Moses, shut up, because I put the power in your hand. Look at your hand. The power is in your hand. And and I equate that to to, to what the humanists really are saying to me is that is the power's in our hands. Stop running to God to ask God to straighten out what we messed up. We don't need to do that. And so that was an interesting conversation because everybody in the UU church is not a theist. And then to talk about what is our responsibility as human beings, I think they found that refreshing. I know I did. Love uh, is not only a capacity of people that uh, have a belief in God, uh, kindness, exactly. uh, understanding, compassion. These are available to every human in the, in the entire world, regardless. See, I think so too, Dick, but you would be surprised how many people think that if you're not Christian, I mean, Christian in the evangelical conservative way, you don't have the capacity of love. So I was in a huge meeting here in Columbia of pastors. And one of the pastors got up and said, you know, you can't be just if you're not a Christian. You don't know anything about compassion if you're not a Christian. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what? Yeah. How about Buddhists out of compassion that set themselves on fire when they saw the social injustice all around them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, come on. So uh, what it reminded me of is that evangelicalism one of the faults of evangelicalism is that it casts this false narrative mm. that if you're not Christian, you cannot exercise justice. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know anything about compassion. And that's just totally false. Can, totally. can I bring in a, a phrase that was uh, somebody put up on Facebook yesterday that it's just not a new, but I don't hear it used that much. Cognitive dissonance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like you grow up in the church and you get told that you have to be 
this, 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 and this in order to have this, this, and this. But then you run into people that are Buddhist and these other things, and you yeah. see this, and you all of a sudden have this cogn cognitive dissonance. Exactly. You think it's supposed to be this way, but you see it's maybe this way, but now what do we do? Oh, yeah. Oh. And, and more and more of us are having to confront it, segue, having to confront it with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, conservatives want to cast that as a bunch of people who are violent, looters, who hate America. Oh, oh that's what uh, the president said. Yeah. Anarchists and, hate America. And the only reason you protest is because you love the place you are. You want it to be better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> what, which, uh, um, let me kind of tie some more things together here. My daughter lives in Portland, Oregon. Oh my! Where the uh, the moms you you saw in the news joined arm in arm. Right. And as you saw the picture of the moms, you might you might have noticed that they all had a homogeneity. They they were all white. They were all white. And what just happened a day or two ago is that those moms looked in the mirror and said, "We're all white." And this isn't right. Okay. We're we're trying to take a lead in something that we need to join hands and come under the administration of our black sisters and brothers. And so they right. reached out to Black Lives Matters and different <clears throat> groups in Portland, and they divested themselves of of the leadership roles and said. We're here to work. Uh, we'll talk. How do how do we do this together? Right. So that was uh, one of those moments where uh, you have that uh, I don't know a realization that racism can come into thinking that we can do this because and then we look around and we're all white. Where is it? it this is really not just a white issue or or just a black issue. Right. Well, first of all, let me say. Now, one of the things that has really encouraged me to believe that we're really experiencing a cultural shift is the fact that in all the protests, you see a large number of white and brown and native folk. It's not just all black. That was the, that was the critique against the rebellions, I do not call them riots, I refuse to do that, mm -hmm. of 64, 65, 68, that the majority of the rebellions were Black. Mm -hmm. What has happened, I think, now, now, I must say that there were a number of white persons who participated in the Martin Luther King civil rights era, who died who gave body and mind and total support under the leadership of Martin. The Jewish community at the very beginning of the civil rights movement was very involved. Mm -hmm. What drove them away was when the music changed from we shall overcome to say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Suddenly oh. mm. they started to kind of withdraw because of the Black Power Movement and that. Mm 
Now, now I understand those women who said in Portland, look, we need to make a shield. Right. And I don't care if they're federal troops. I don't care if they're police officers. I don't care who they are. They, they have to come through us in order to make mayhem here. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. I also appreciate their recognition that sometimes Anglo people have to listen. But, but here's the thing about Tracy's comment. Dennis Rodman was crazy. When he was with the Bulls, he, 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 he was somebody that was just unbelievable. But the Bulls understood he could play monster defense and he could rebound like a crazy man. My point here is everybody has a role in this movement. And I think those moms recognize we still have a role, but we need coach to tell us where you need us. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. And, and I, 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 uh, I affirm that. And, and, you know, on the flip side, I've heard people, both in person and, again, on social media, say, you know, this is a black thing. We don't need these white folks coming in here and taking over, blah, blah, blah. And I, my response to that simply is, it's not just a black thing. It's a justice thing. And that let's don't play who's been abused the most. Let's, let's recognize that all of us have been victims of a racist, uh, sexist, homophobic system that has kept the best out to maintain the status quo. Now and we, we have to change the whole system. We talked last year that there were some uh, black folks that were saying, this is not a black problem. Whites created this. Whites need to fix it. They are saying that. There are many people who say that. I, I have a colleague um, in your, your town, uh, in Jeff City, who uh, emphatically says, I'm not, I'm not going to speak to any white groups. Uh, you know, I'm not, that's not my job to teach them about racism. They know about racism, do the homework. I, yes, white people put together the systemic racism that exists. Yeah, one guy said to me, he said, well, you know, all black people didn't believe that. I mean, um, that's why they had the uh, marriage rules in the South, you know, because black people were taking over and moving. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> The reason why is because white families had those black babies that were created in slavery. And the law was, is that if you're a child and you could prove your birthright, you had a right to inheritance. <laughs> no black man was going down to the courthouse talking about, hi, this is Jane, and we're going to get married. That wasn't going to happen, right? It was about inheritances. But I don't think Anglo people can change it by themselves. I agree. They need to hear the voice of, of Lakotas and Dakotas and Sioux and others who, who can say, look, the problem is you didn't honor the treaty that you made. <laughs> you stole our land and, and, and you need, we need to hear that voice. Or Latinos who say, listen, I've come to this country not, not to take anybody else's job. I've come here for a better life the same way you did when you came through Ellis Island. And why you keep putting my children in these cages, right? Oh. So Dave Chappelle tells a joke about people in a car 
and, and what I pull from it is simply this. The car is driven by white men and they say to everyone else in the car, everybody buckle up, relax. We know these roads, these roads and how to get around discrimination because we built these roads, right? And, and yes, white America built the system, but they need the conscience of others, particularly people of color, to say, you know, your heart's in the right place, but you're still being a little racist. You're being epistemologically racist, right? So, you know, you and I have been with universities and, and in that matrix. And what's the first thing they say about whether or not to hire a person of color? Well, are they qualified? Qualified under what rubric? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the rubric that's been put together by white racist kinds of ideas. Going back to slavery and, uh, something you mentioned earlier about capitalism. You said uh, that capitalism commodified people. Exactly. What slavery was. Yeah. People were just a commodity. Exactly. So it, it seems as though that is what has continued in capitalism. Right. And maybe it was before there was ever a, a 1623 or 1619 maybe it was back in europe i don't know when all of capitalism officially started but i know what slavery was before that oh um, yeah oh yeah oh yeah so this idea of commodifying people is an ancient practice absolutely maybe capitalism just uh so to speak capitalized on that uh I agree. or that value i agree i agree and and sophisticated it yeah so these days i may not be aware of the of the strength of capitalism like i ought to be because it's so seductive it says if you work hard enough you can rise up and yet statistically that that is just false mm -hmm. that those who are in the underclass are going to continue to be in the underclass. Now, what capitalism does is throw you a couple of crumbs and it'll say, well, hey, we care about you, so let us build you uh, public housing. The water's no good. <laughs> it's built by a factory where the air's no good. <laughs> right. But we want to show you we really care about you. Yeah, well, bullshit. That's it. And built yeah. on the, uh, the old dump that we... Uh, <laughs> where we dumped all of our toxic materials and uh, yep so so case in point Bethune Cookman University is built on a garbage heap because that was the only land that they would sell to Mary McLeod Bethune in order to build the university now to date I have not heard of any toxic materials there but the very fact that you have to build an institution on a garbage heap says something about the commodification of people or how about the most recent one? So we have two people who come out, protesters are going by, and they pull out weapons. Right. And the governor of the state says, well, if they're convicted, I'm going to pardon them. Dick, if you and I went out on Main Street <laughs> with automatic weapons, <laughs> I, don't care, I don't care who it is, that, uh, if we make it to jail, Mm -hmm. And that's a big if. Big if. 
they're gonna throw us under the jail. They're not gonna, but you know, the governor feels about him, but the Woods boy who went to prison on a drug charge, the governor says, well, what I'm gonna do is not let you go free because once he came out of the prison, he built a business. He has a business right there on college and business loop 70. Hmm. He, he built a business. He showed, he demonstrated in a real well way that, that he was about rehabilitation. And the governor says, well, I won't send you back to prison, but I'll put you under house arrest until 2029. What? What? You'll let these people who have weapons because they're afraid of these black protesters and you'll, you want to commute their sentence or pardon them. But here's a guy who's really trying to do exactly what you say is makes you a good citizen in America pull yourself up, develop something, contribute to the society in a positive way, but you want to give him house arrest until 2020. Someone asked me once, Dick, how do you keep from being angry every day? Mm -hmm. And two things keep me from being angry every day. One is that I really believe the labor of our foreparents was not in vain. I, I watched what they went through and what they what they had to endure, and they kept on keeping on. Mm -hmm. They didn't give up. The second is, is that neither did they try to destroy and kill every white person they saw because they had a reason to, and yet they refrained from that. The third thing is, is because if I spend my time being angry, I can no longer be productive. And I believe my, my personal and our calling in life is to contribute to creating the fundamentally new. And we spend our time being angry, we'll never do anything. Mm -hmm. And the fourth thing is because I want to set an example for my children and my grandchildren, that even though this race towards justice is not a sprint, but a marathon, it can be won. Thank you. Glad you Thank brought you, that sir. up. Yeah. Thank you. Although some would probably say that even you, Dr. Dawson, have some kind of internal rage that you have pushed down so far that you don't let it out, and that's good, but that may be affecting your health. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people think that I've pushed my rage down so far that I don't let it come out. Quite frankly, I, I, I become angry just like anyone else. But I've, I know that when I am angry, when I get mad, I make mistakes. And I'm at a point in my life that I may not live long enough <laughs> to eradicate, undo, make up for the mistakes I make. So I try to find ways in which to release my anger that's going to be positive to me spiritually, physically, psychologically, etc. So I do little things. One is I listen to a lot of music, a lot of music. I, I find poets who, because I, I, I believe that musicians have a unique gift. It frightened Plato. <laughs> right socrates he 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 loved he he hated the poets right because 
The poets find ways to take things that are dissimilar and pull them together. Ooh. Philosophers find things that are similar and pull them apart. The only, the only musicians that according to the dialogues that Socrates liked were um, people who played the flute, but not the lyre. Cause he said the lyre, it caused too many emotions to come to the surface later for him. Um, <laughs> I, I, I listen to a lot of music. Um, you know, my best, my favorite classical music comes from Bach. I, I listen to uh, a lot of jazz. I listen to gospel. Um, I listen to 60s, 70s revolutionary music. I still listen to Gil Scott Heron and, and those folk. I play chess. It's competitive. I can get my aggression out. I'm getting my butt beat lately. <laughs> I cook. Uh, I learned in the parish that was a way of letting stuff out because there was always somebody who would say something ugly. You know, because I, you know, my experience in churches, I, I that over 40 some years I was in the majority of the time in large mean churches. Hmm. And so people would say things. I remember at a meeting one time I was giving my accounting of my stewardship as the pastor. I, I had visited 31 churches in that month and on and on. And, and one woman in the midst of the meeting yelled out loud, would someone please tell the pastor there are 32 churches in Detroit? Like, oh. <laughs> you know, just just ridicule to belittle me. Or what they'll do is they'll say, they won't say it to you, but they say it to your wife or your children or the people close to you uh, to try to hurt. So I, you, you can't fuss back. That brings you down to their level. So I'd go home and I'd make mashed potatoes. And I'd whip them up and I'd put their face in there. <laughs> uh, or I cook uh, as a way of, of getting that out. I engage in conversation and I, you know, I put my little column out every week and every week there's someone who has something ugly to say. Okay. Oftentimes um, the same person. Oh yeah. I, I and I've noticed, you know, uh there's a couple of them every week, and I, I figured it out. They're riding my coattail because people read it. People read the stuff. They may not respond, but I every day I go in the store, I go somewhere, and someone says, you know, I read your column. And I'm like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So that's a way they can get their voice out by riding my coattail. That's cool. Plus, in this work, you and I both know, and everybody who's listening, who has committed themselves to social justice, you realize you better be thick skinned because if you're fragile, if you're easily intimidated, they will wear you out. Mm -hmm. you, you have to grow thick skinned. But yeah, I get angry. Um, I read people who encourage me. I read lots of Baldwin. Mm -hmm. I understand why Baldwin left the US. Um, there are times I would like to leave too, but I can't leave this burning house because I have children and grandchildren, grandma and others in this house. And, you know, I, I can't leave the house. He did come back. Yeah, he did come back. And, he did come uh, back. I think and, uh, someone was telling me recently, it was uh, because he saw what was going on in the early 60s and said, what am I doing over here in London? Yep, yep. I, I recommend to everyone, if you haven't seen it, I, I saw it on Netflix. It was at the film festival downtown. 
but I saw it on, on Netflix. I am not your Negro. Yes. Uh, I think that's a powerful piece and mm -hmm. it, it gives you a real reflection of who Baldwin is, mm -hmm. was, um, and also what we almost endure at some point. And this battle is on every level, every level. Well, his um, uh, debate with William F. Buckley is uh, a classic as well. Is that marvelous? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. So I think I'm, my thing is, and I wanna say this, to all who listen, and I, I hope I hope some young bloods are listening to the program as well. You gotta find constructive ways to fight the battle, the internal battle. Um, you can't take it out on people who look like you. You cannot be seduced. I mean, because you know, I, I hear these people who wanna criticize and they'll go, Well, what about black on black crime? Mm. Well, come on, black on black crime is created by proximity and poverty. I remember the author of the Black Klansman came to Columbia College. Oh. And uh, Stallworth and uh, the president of Columbia College said, I, I was, that he was amazed that he had read statistics about black on black crime. And what did Stallworth think about that? And Stallworth said, well, white people kill white people too. <laughs> Right, and and um, I, I all I want to say about that is that I encourage my younger brothers and sisters to find constructive ways to work out their rage, not to internalize it to the point that it becomes destructive physically and psychologically too, nor to take it out on other folks. I, I was in the store one day and. And, and I heard an African-American woman say to an African-American child, that's why I can't stand you, because you look like your damn daddy. Well, and, and, and that kid now is going to carry that. Yeah. Oh, my. Um, and, and I know there are white mothers who say the same thing to their kids, too. Mm -hmm. but, but we have to be particular vig particularly vigilant, it seems to me that we don't internalize the pain we feel to the point that we take it out on one another. We have to use it constructively to get out of the get out of the residue of slavery and find a way to work together and not against one another. So. Amen. Amen. So do you have uh, what you would call uh, a priority list for today's uh, world? Well, there are so many issues that captivate my imagination that I, I, I don't anymore. All injustice is injustice against all of us. And so my methodology has changed because I've gotten older. I used to go to all the marches and I used to participate and march, but I, I can't do that anymore. And I don't know if I'm needed for that anymore. As the, as the women in Portland had to recognize what position to play, yeah. I found I need to too. There's some younger voices and minds that need to step to the front. Mm -hmm. What I try to do is write and lecture and preach and um, that I think that's my position now, to mm -hmm. encourage mm -hmm. um, and say, this is my experience. If it makes sense to you, hold on to it. If it doesn't, kick it to the curb. Mm -hmm. um, because I know the elders in the community I grew up in 
they recognized when it was time to let someone else, but they always encouraged. Mm -hmm. If it was nothing else, man, if it was nothing else, that being out there as a high school ball player with the option of getting involved in the, in the underlife over and against trying to use sports. And, and no one told me about trying to be a pro athlete. What they said was use sports to get an education so you can move forward. If they didn't know anything about Plato, Aristotle, Nikki Giovanni, any of that, but they would sit in the stands and root. And even when you made a mistake and I played, you know, I, I played free safety and defensive back. And there would always be sometimes some guy would catch the ball over me and get a touchdown and I'd fall flat on my face. They would say, that's all right, get up. And that's all right, get up was powerful because I realized they weren't just talking about a football game. They were talking about life. Because you're going to fall sometimes. You're going to make some mistakes. But get up Mm -hmm. and keep on. And so... That's my message to people now, is to get up. And, and it doesn't matter how old you are, because you know, that's one of the big ones. People will say, well, nobody wants to listen to me. I, I can't do this. Lady told me, I, I can't do anything. I, I want Medicaid to be expanded, but I, I can't do it. I say, yes, you can. While you watch it, Edge of Night, and as the world turn, out the commercial, pick up the phone, <laughs> and call your representative, you're never too old, never too young. And so that kind of involvement is another avenue for you, is the political involvement with uh, picking up the phone or uh, writing a letter or? Yeah. You already do that with your column in the Columbia Missourian, right? Yes. I, I know that many people interpret your column as political. I don't know if you intend it to be political, but uh, sometimes these days it's hard not to be interpreted that way. Oh yeah, you know my critics—they call me a ra- uh, what do they call me? They call me a socialist, a communist, uh, on and on and on. Eh, that's okay. Sticks and stones would break my bones. I'm used to being called names, so that doesn't bother me. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes I I have a real intent to say something political. Mm-hmm. But my number one. My number one, number one and two is to start a dialogue. Even if people disagree, they're talking about it. There's one person who's, uh, well, the city clerk. I like Brianna. She, she's good. She's good people. And uh, she said to me one time over coffee, she goes, well, you certainly have a lot of people talking. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the best compliments she could ever give me. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, The second one is I'm committed to the common good. And I think somewhere along the line, we've lost a sense of that. But again, Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle helped me. He said, you have to realize we're living in the age of spin. And how people spin things attracts or pushes away. And because we live in the age of spin, it's hard to know what we know and what we believe Mm -hmm. because the way people spin it and so i I try to be rooted i try to have the columns rooted in this commitment to a common good and whether that's the environment 
I mean, we could we could absolutely reform, eradicate, rebuild the whole system. But if we don't have fresh water, like in Flint, we don't we don't have air to breathe. It's got to be about the common good. And you know, heaven forbid, but you know, we could get Mr. Trump out of office and get a monster. Not now, I'm not talking about Joe Biden particularly, but we could get someone worse. And so we have to be vigilant on every front. I'm concerned about our governor. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I think he wants to be like Mr. Trump. I do not think he's done a good job about the virus. You know, he's talking that same talk about, well, let's just send all the kids back to school because if they get sick, they just go home. They won't go to the hospital. They won't go to the doctor's office. Well, home might be grandma's house right and on their way home they might pass right one of the workers in the office and now they have the yeah so and last thing dick about anger i watch a lot of comedy oh good (laughs) i think they are brilliant man they are brilliant because they can take something that would just irritate the devil out of you and make you laugh at it so you get another perspective. Yeah, I, I listen to a lot of comedy. I, I'm concerned about our government, our, our state government, that um, it, is, it is divisive now. The University of Missouri's uh, President Chow says he's not going to remove the Thomas Jefferson statue and then want to argue about how how those symbols of the Confederacy was about Southern pride. Really? Come on. I just yeah. found out that there's one uh, General Price, the Daughters of the Confederacy had a monument put up on a street that I go on every day. Wow. I'd, I had never seen it. I'd, I'd never stopped to read it. I didn't know what it was. Right. And I found out recently that one of my black friends grew up here and that stone and monument was offensive to her and her family. It was a marker between black and white uh, li- living areas, and it needs to come down. There's no, yeah, it needs to come down. There's no, uh, no, no reason for it to stay there. Right, but there's a lot of people. They're afraid. I see. I think fear is the fundamental problem. I think, I may be giving them too much credit, but I think most white supremacists are afraid that if they don't maintain the status quo or more as they see it, that people of color will treat them like they treated people of color. Uh And I, I wish I could tell them in a way they could hear. I'm not looking to enslave, to lynch, to punish white folk. I'm really invested in building a common good so that everybody may prosper and do well. Let's really be faithful to the ideas of the Constitution, of this this democratic experiment. I I don't have time to sit around and think about how I can lynch somebody. Y'all, y'all did that and wasn't very successful. I, I don't mean you personally, but you know what I mean. I know. 
have done that. And it wasn't very successful. All it did was make black people more <laughs> more angry. Mm-hmm. Um, that none, of, none of that stuff works. And so why, why would I invest my time and energy in thinking about that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. We, we, we have other things to deal with. Well, we have come to the end of our time. Thank you, my brother. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, too. And um, friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon. My friend, let us not forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. By and large, American politics is dominated by politicians who fear their career on immoral compromising and align themselves with open form of political, economic, and social exploitation. There are exceptions, of course. We salute those. But what political leader can stand up and say my party is a party of principles? But the party of Kennedy is also the party of Islam. The party of Javis is also the party of Goldwater. Where is our party? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march on Washington? Where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? Where is the political party that will protect the citizens of Albany, Georgia? Do you know that in Albany, Georgia, Nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Dixocrat, but by the Frederick government for peaceful protests. But what did the Frederick government do when Albany Deputy Sheriff beat Attorney C.B. King and left him half dead? What did the Frederick government do when local police officials kicked and assaulted the pregnant wife of Slater King and she lost her baby? Those who have said be patient and wait, we know that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now.